This is Michael McClure, and we're coming at you with another episode of UnkView. And uh, as always, I'm joined by my partner in crime, my partner in climb or my partner in crime. If we're into spelunking or mountain climbing, I guess you're my partner in climb. But what I meant to say was my partner in, in crime. So in any event, obviously you're there since you're laughing at me already. Good morning, Brendan. How are you today? I'm doing good. Uncle Mike, how are you? How are you doing? You already got the, the motorcycle ride in, I heard. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I rode 70 miles this morning, and uh, then I went to yoga. So I freeze my yeah. ass off. It's amazing how cold it is at 5 a.m. in Michigan, even in, in July. And, uh, and then I, I went to yoga and sweated my ass off. And now I'm here doing this, which is, of course, the highlight of, of today for me. So um, I'm really anxious to get started on today's topic. I know, uh, you know, yeah. I told you mm-hmm. in, our, in our opening episode that we don't uh, like to really plan much of what we do. We don't do much research because we want this to be honest and organic. And um, we just had a brief conversation a minute ago about what we're going to talk about today, and there's so much to cover here. But um, to to get right into it, because we do have a lot to cover, uh, we're going to be doing a series of podcasts on what we call PC Culture and You. And uh, we're we're probably going to be choosing one or two subtopics within uh, the whole arena or the idea (laughs) of political correctness, and then we're going to be taking sort of a deep dive on that one point. And Brendan suggested that we, we start with um, talking about campus culture. And there's so much that's been said and, and is being said about how what's happening on today's uh, American college campuses or what has been happening there for the past X years is, is, is shaping and reshaping and manifesting in much of what we see in today's you know, broader macro level culture. So Brennan, why don't you why don't you take it from here and just start leading us into this topic because there's just a lot to talk about here. Yeah, I thought so. I think this is a good place to start in terms of a discussion on PC culture because I think that this is you know the college campus is, has always been I think uh, you know a melting pot or a hotbed or however you want to describe it using terms like that of of social thought. And whatever the next wave of social thought sort of is, and it's almost a perfect distillation of this kind of uh, of this kind of um, you know social ideology. So whatever people are thinking about, you know, obviously um, we're, we're used to looking at college campuses as sort of a um, a, a liberal and rather progressive place. Um, you know, the free speech movement sort of started in Berkeley in the 1960s and on the college campus and moved outwards from there. Um, all of these things I think are are true, but what's been happening lately that I think kind of interesting is that there's been the the wave the the wave of of liberalism or of leftism or whatever you want to describe it that's sort of rolling through colleges has taken on this very um, serious political correct tone, and by very serious I mean. Um, I, I think obviously I, I, I don't even know if I need to explain it to like people listening, um, because if you've been had an ear towards the media and news at all, you've heard about things in the last year that have happened on college campuses, like the um, Melissa Click professor at Mizzou asking to essentially physically remove a journalist from a protest that was being held uh, for Black Lives Matter. Or the Yale campus, in which the students confronted the dean of of students and and basically asked for his resignation from his position because he wasn't open to even listening or wasn't open to, pardon me, uh, forbidding the students from wearing any Native American costumes during Halloween. I mean, these are real examples of things that are taking place on colleges, and I think that it's uh it's disturbing to me. Um, but particularly why I think it's relevant to the conversation, like I said, is that it's, um, you know, everything that takes place in PC culture, which I don't even know if we need to describe uh, or define too harshly in this podcast. I don't know if we need to, you know, maybe what we can do over the series of podcasts is try to come up with a working definition for exactly what PC culture is. But um, one of the one of the things that I'm interested in I guess, and having this discussion is like everything that takes place within the stew of what we would describe as political correct culture takes place here. You've got uh, people who are talking about racial issues and trans issues and, you know, gay rights and marginalized people and all of this stuff. But it's all taken under this, you know, hey, it's not okay to talk about that. We need to deplatform speakers. We need to 
remove the right for people to talk. You can't say these words. You have to use our preferred pronouns. You have to, you know, all of this stuff, man. It's just, uh, it's just nuts. And I think I've rambled long enough. Maybe I'll let you, <laughs> I'll let you well, r- reply to that a little bit. Well, thanks for that intro. And I agree with all of that. And, and I th- actually, I think it's a good idea if we do define maybe not PC culture, uh, but actual PC itself. And, you know, p- what is political correctness? Because sure. it's interesting. That's, probably the one bit of research that I did do for this podcast was I just looked it up because I think we all have our own sort of working definition of political correctness that I never really sat down and, you know, even in my, and never even in my head did I actually form a sentence as to what my definition of political correctness is. It was just sort of one of those, yeah. it's like pornography. When you see it, you know that that's political correctness. Yeah, you know what thing. it is. Yeah. Yep. Right. But here's the actual I mean, I, definition. I turned off the bolt, so. Well, right. Exactly. Um, but this is this is how Miriam Webster defines it. It's conforming to a belief that language and practices which could offend political sensibilities, as in matters of sex or race, should be eliminated. And I just want to comment on that definition because when I read that, I was I was a little bit surprised at how different that felt from what I had sort of Again, I never really defined it, but that didn't seem like my definition because the part that's interesting, it is because the part that sticks out to me is those last three words should Should be be eliminated. eliminated. So in other words, we're just not supposed to talk about these things. And just as sort of a big, you know, kind of a stake in the ground as we start this series of podcasts on this general topic is that that to me just goes so radically against the concept and one of the one of the pillars of our culture and society, which is free speech. So you know we yeah. should all be able to say, um, you know, again, I know there are reasons, you know, the old, you know, don't scream fire in a crowded theater example. But getting rid of those extreme cases, we're supposed to be a culture of free speech. And so if we're saying yeah. if the whole purpose of this political correctness is to eliminate certain statements, you know that. Can be we can extrapolate that not very far to say that also means we're not supposed to be thinking those things. It's just it's so wrong on its face. And I also yeah. want to make one more sort of an intro comment, which is, which is, um, when somebody talks like I'm talking right now, I think the people who are into political correctness and, and are progressives and liberals instantly become offended because they take my tone and my my feel as if. I'm attacking people. And I could be completely in favor of everything a liberal or a progressive is in favor of, except the only distinction I'm making is, but I don't want to stop anybody from talking about it. I don't want to stop anybody from being able to express their opinions. But political correctness specifically seeks to do exactly that. And I think that's just totally fucked up, period. Period. Well, I think it's, I think that that exposes sort of what a, a little bit of what it's about. And we're getting, I mean, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I feel like that exposes a little bit about what this is about because I was following this campus stuff very closely over the last year, um, particularly over the last nine months since the Yale event, which was just a little, I think over nine months ago now. Um, but it, it was very fascinating to me because I think that that anger, especially from, because you're saying what you're saying is I'm just my raising of the question and my tone in which I'm raising it causes people who are maybe on the other side of the line, so to speak, um, if, if if such a line really exists. But you're saying that people who are on that side are they they suddenly feel very hey wait a minute what are you doing here this is this is and they start assigning to you all of these things that you're are, a hater you know yeah you're a hater you're you're against whatever you're. You know, uh, I find that very fascinating because that exposes to me that what this really is about at some level is about power. And I think mm-hmm. that that's correct. And we can talk, I think we can talk about that in a minute and we'll, we can return to it. But what I really want to talk, what I'm interested in is like, so what, what prompted some of this is Jonathan Haidt, who is a, um, you guys can look him up, H-A-I-D-T, I believe. Jonathan Haidt wrote an article that appeared in the Atlantic about a year ago. This is a liberal professor. I mean, this is a guy who votes Democrat. He's, you know, he, he, he would be, you and he would be on the opposite side of almost every issue, probably with the exception of this one, because he wrote 
an article talking about the coddled American college student in the Atlantic. Now, it's important that this was about a year ago because since that has happened, we've seen protests take place on many different campuses related to things like I mentioned earlier, such as the Yale protest, I think is the best example of you know the students. Yeah, and let me just inter- let me interrupt you for a second. I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I want you to keep going with where you're going, but I also want to make sure that at some point uh, in the near future, in this conversation, that we actually or that you give a better and more complete telling of these instances that you're referencing, because I don't yeah, think yep. everybody knows about them, like the Yale Institute situation, the Missouri yep. situation, etc. So, but keep going where you're going. Yeah. But- just make sure yeah, to circle back and tell those stories. Yeah, we'll, we'll circle back to those stories after this because I want to frame it properly. And I think that Jonathan Haidt's article, The Coddled American College Student, is a good, is a good context to understand where my interest and where this conversation sort of comes from. And, and then we can talk about, I think, before even those stories specifically, I want to mm-hmm. jump into what it was like on campuses when you and I went to college because part of what Jonathan Haidt mentions in this article and in the talks he gives around it are I mean, he says specifically, he's like, look, you know, you can be watching some of these things occur in the news or people talk about them online. Uh, you can read an article about them, meaning these protests that I will talk about in a minute and give you guys some some greater uh, uh, description of. But he says, look, I mean, you can see some of these protests taking place at different colleges. And you might ask yourself, look, is this real? Like, is, is, this, is all this real or are these just kind of ridiculous examples of you know, extreme students who just are doing a couple of things at one place or another. And he, his response to that question was, if you have not been on an American college campus since 2013, you have no idea how the culture has changed. Um, and that really blew my mind because I haven't been in, I graduated in 2009 uh, from Eastern Michigan and haven't really been on a college campus since, except trying to, you know, go to parties and pick up chicks. So when, uh, you know, PC culture, PC culture doesn't factor into, or actually it does, and we can talk about that in a minute too, which is interesting. But I, I'm curious, what, my, in, my involvement in PC culture and the uh, political correctification of conversation on campus in whatever way that it occurred was very minimal. Like it didn't feel like there was a lot of, I mean, I, you know, you couldn't walk into, into class and be an overt racist, but it didn't feel like there was a lot of topics you couldn't talk about or felt like, you know, like you were treading on dangerous ground by even walking into. I mean, I felt like the point of going to all the classes that I had, which were all mostly philosophy and writing classes, were essentially to explore those topics implicitly. Exactly. No, that's an excellent point that you make there because, you know, uh, and I graduated from college, you know, long before you did. I graduated in the early 80s. So, you know, I, I, and I recall it quite vividly because it was, you know, it was the best years of my life. I, I graduated from Michigan State and had, you know, fantastic time there. And all the stuff that I see now, and, and I found it very intriguing what you just said a moment ago, and if I'm quoting you correctly, you're quoting of, of uh, Jonathan correctly. He said, if you haven't been on a college campus since 2013, is that what you said? Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Okay, that, well, that's just crazy because it, it is, if true, that just shows you how radically this is all changing. But back to my experience, I mean, I saw, I don't think I ever saw a protest of any sort. I never, there were no real political controversies to speak of that I can recall. I mean, it was a, it was a very, um, comparing it to what I, I, I sense now, you know, a very innocent, idyllic, untainted, unspun, um, uh, situation. I don't, I never felt any spin of any variety in any class I ever took. I mean, um, you know, the whole idea that college campuses are progressive and, and, and oftentimes highly liberal. I didn't get that sense either. I mean, I, and, and I didn't get any sense at all. I mean, there was no, it wasn't right or left. It just wasn't anything. It, there was no poli- there was no political angle to any of it. I was just there to yeah. learn. And yeah. try to get laid, and and and, and I spent I spent no time on really much else. So and and I and again I, I could have had my head in the sand maybe, but I don't think so because you know Michigan State forty four thousand students when I was there I mean it's like a city in and of itself, and um, you know and there was a daily newspaper there, which was widely read you know that was written and, and you know editorialized and and distributed by students. 
And it was, you know, everybody read that every day. You know, nobody had an iPad or a computer back then. So uh, I think I was in, the point is, I think I was in touch with the vibe of what was happening. And nothing was happening. Yeah, I think, um, I, 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 I'm not sure what the origin of the culture is. You know, Jonathan Haidt talks a little bit about the fact that we have a generation of people who, well, people, well, students now, who grew up in a time in which they were very coddled as children and they were, you know, they were not let, you know, Hey, you can't walk down the end of the block. I can't, you got to stay within where I can see you. If there's ever a problem, you need to go tell a teacher about it. And it really prevented a lot of these people of these, these children from solving their own problems. Like if there's a bully, you need to go talk to an authority figure about it. So one of the things that he mentions in this article that bore out through the, the, the then year after he wrote it was that all of these movements are constantly appealing to some authority figure to solve the problem they're complaining about. So it's like, we don't want people to wear native American costumes for Halloween, which like maybe, maybe is a worthwhile thing to do. If you care about that a lot and don't like the idea that you're ridiculing a culture potentially. I mean, I'm not saying that that's on its face, a stupid thing. Um, I think it's it's really stupid to appeal to the dean of students to make a rule about it like yep like they did but what what I'm saying is that that's maybe a worthwhile topic but what's strange about it is that instead of going on your own in in taking your own resources and trying to create some kind of campus movement to like hey don't be a, an idiot don't be dumb and wear and be insensitive to you know the destruction of maybe the native american people or something like that um, they go straight to the authority and appeal to they that go tell on somebody. Exactly. And so Jonathan Haidt's point was he was like, maybe this is exactly where this has come from, which is that this, these, these kids who were always overly parented, which is something that I remember hearing about and occurred sort of just be, be just underneath me in terms of you know, my age bracket, I think was the last one that kind of escaped before the iron curtain fell on, on childhood. <laughs> but uh, I think that, I mean, I remember hearing about that and I think that this is like maybe part of what has, has caused that to develop is, is that, is that kind of thing. That's interesting because I never really thought about that. I'd never really heard that. I mean, I'm, I mean, I've, trust me, I know all about the, the, the overly, you know, the helicopter parented generation and all of that, that, that I'm keenly aware of that, but I never drew any connection between that and political correctness. But now that you say that, or now that uh, hate said it, it, it makes a little bit of sense because, yeah, if the whole idea is, you know, uh, we run to somebody when we see something we don't like and we want a rule established to remedy that as opposed to yeah. dealing with it directly and personally. Um, and I could see how yeah. that, that, that phenomenon could spin out of control and you know, get to the point where it becomes like almost knee jerk that, because that's what it feels like right now to me is that, it's, that this whole movement has reached this level of people who are literally sitting and waiting to be offended. They are waiting. They are oh, that's, that's like a exactly sprinter. There's like a sprinter down in the blocks waiting for the gun to go off on a hundred yard dash, just waiting yeah. for the next. And I, I wish my memory was better because uh, Dennis Miller who, you know, the, the comedian and now political mm-hmm. commentator, Dennis Miller, uh, is hilarious to follow on uh, Facebook. And so I follow him, and he, he came up with, he had something he said about the exact point I'm making now, but he said it in a much more clever fashion about people just sitting around waiting to be, you know, just waiting to be pissed off about anything and everything. Oh, I know what it was. Oh, yeah. the, gist of it was the gist of it was, there's now this phenomenon where, and he, ironically, it was about this exact topic, about Native Americans, but in this case, it was about the Washington Redskins. You know how they have, oh, yeah. there's been all the protests yep. surrounding that they should get rid of that name because it's offensive. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and he, and he Wait, cited that yeah. as an example of the people who are protesting it, who have no direct connection to it, are more offended than the people who are directly connected to it. You don't see big protests from Native American groups. They're not that offended by it, apparently. But but PC culture uh, is well, and so in their defense, there's probably not enough of them around to make a big protest, <laughs> which I think well, is terrible, but maybe accurate. 
Could be, but you get the point that Miller was making. Yeah, which I get is, the point you're making. You know, yeah. there's, there's this cottage industry of professional people who get offended by everything. But let's get back because um, we're, we're getting pretty far down the track and we still haven't defined yeah, those, I, I those seminal and... incidents. So I'd like yeah. you to define, yeah. I want you to tell that Yale story in detail. I want you to tell the, um, uh, the Yiannopoulos story in detail. Um, yeah. And then any of these others that you've. Uh, that you have sure. referenced, the people know the whole story on each. Yeah. So, so the last thing I want to say, based, uh, just before we move into that, is you know what you just mentioned in terms of them wanting to be offended and waiting for something that gives them a sense of righteous identification and opposition to something is exactly what Jonathan Haidt talked about in in some talks he gave post that article as well. And I would encourage anybody listening to go check that guy out. He's, he's very cool. Um, and he, and, and here's the other thing to, to say, he is liberal. He is a liberal professor. Like he is, he is not what I would describe as a conservative, but he's concerned about this culture and how it's taking over universities. So here are examples of that. Uh, the first, the one that I want to give is one I've referenced a couple other times, which is at Yale. So about nine months ago, um, I mean, I've, I've already given some of the details, but the, the basis of the story is just that there was um, a student petition to get rid of or to, to have the dean of students outlaw, forbid, set a rule up that pre- prevents people from wearing uh, Native American costumes for Halloween. Um, and he didn't do that. The dean of students basically said back publicly, look, this is not worth my time. Uh, this is not what my position exists for. And I'm not going to put it, people can wear whatever they want. And if you have a problem with it, you can go protest them directly or do something like that. Um, and you guys can all look this up. There's videos surrounding this on YouTube. So what ended up happening was that these students got so angry uh, that he did not basically bend in the wind to their desire to forbid the Native American costume on Yale's campus that they they gathered in Yale Square, I guess, right at the center of campus and chanted and protested and demanded his resignation from his position. Demanded it. You doesn't matter what other job he did. It doesn't matter if he was the greatest dean of students that could have possibly be exist, existed based on nearly any other metric. I don't even know how you'd measure that, but that could have been used. They, they were like, no, we want you. You did not forbid this. We want you gone. And he confronted the students, which I think is amazing. And he talked to them. And there's a video, I think you even mentioned it before when we talked about this, of one of the students is screaming at him, just just screaming at him, saying, like, your job is to make this a safe space for us. And he was like, well, look, I disagree with you. I don't think that's my job. And she interrupts him and shouts him down and is like, well, you should step down because you don't get it. And it feels like, that's, that is the energy, that is the seminal energy of this entire past year of these events. Um, again, yeah, and could I this up on YouTube? Yeah, could I add just a little bit to your description? Because I think, I, I think that there's a, a little more to the telling of that story. And I'm just referring to the video um, of, you know, I think the, the, the incident that we're, we're talking about. Um, yeah. the, first, I want to say that the professor was the most mild-mannered and soft-spoken dude you can imagine. He was completely level and poised through the entire thing. He never was hostile. He never, again, he never raised his voice. He kept his composure in a situation where I would have been throwing punches. And this uh, young, I believe she was African-American student, I assume. Yeah, she was Asian, I think. Okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, Um, She was screaming at him, I mean, when I say screaming, I mean actually, literally screaming at him. She was extremely profane. She said fuck a bunch of times, you know, fucking yeah. what the fuck kind of language, which I have no problem with, yeah. but again, I'm just trying to contrast the, the, the behavior of the, of the combatants. And yeah, yeah she referenced something about, uh, yeah, it's your job to create a safe space for us. And we need to talk about safe spaces here in a second. But um, yeah. The, the whole stance that this student took was so insane to me because, you know, I'm not entrenched in this, in that whole on-campus political correctness culture. It was so yeah. shocking to me that this person would be saying these things, one, with this level of disrespect because 
she also had her hand in his face and like pointing at his face. Like I said, oh, I yeah. really thought she was going to punch him. Screaming at him. Yeah. I thought she was going to punch him. Yeah. And there were, and, there, yeah. and, and again, I could be wrong about this, but it seemed, I mean, there were, there were other students crowded around. It was a very menacing situation. Oh, they were all circled up around this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I thought he, I thought he was going to get beaten to death. And when I saw the video, I didn't know the backstory. So I kept thinking, what did this guy do to, to deserve that? Then when I found yeah. out, it's like it made it five to 10 times worse because it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, you know, an analogy I would give would be like uh, sentencing a guy to uh, the, the, the gas chamber for jaywalking. It's like the yeah. level of vitriol, the level of anger, the level of angst, the level of just, it felt like hatred and disrespect. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is a professor at Yale. Yale. Uh, yeah, the dean of students. Yeah. At oh, he was America's, the dean of students? Yeah, he was the dean of students. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't even realize the, that. He, again, even worse. Yeah. Well, it, it's, um, yeah, I don't know where that kind of, I don't, I don't really know where that kind of level of anger comes from um, in this context. I mean, I can see someone feeling so strongly about something that they want to, you know, and then seeing someone like the dean of students as a roadblock could cause that level of passion in someone, but it seems well, so, it seems so weird, you know, like, let me offer a theory. It's, it's about like, it's about a fucking costume for Christ's sake. <clears throat> let me offer a theory here. And, and it kind of goes back to what you said about, you know, the, the, the potential origins of all of this in terms of how kids are raised. But yeah. imagine the sense of power. Imagine if you could, you, you, you or I or anyone could just, especially with the access that we have to broadcast platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you know, Instagram, whatever. Imagine if yep. we could pull, pull together a group of, you know, friends of ours who had big followings in those places, and we could, just, we could whip up a frenzy du jour. We could whip up a frenzy on anything we wanted. We could create buzz about anything we wanted. Can you imagine yep. a sense of power, especially... I'm picturing myself at that age because, you know, we're all, I mean, I was incredibly immature when I graduated from college. I was ridiculously immature when I went to college. And it's like, I can't imagine how reckless I might have been if I thought I could have, I could affect things by just, you know, by creating frenzies, by creating a shitstorm. And so I think there could be a little bit of that where it's like, um, uh, and it probably becomes kind of a, almost like a, like big game hunting, like, uh, you know, at Ohio State, or that's just a random example, they took down a professor for that. I'm going to take down the director of students at Yale. Watch this. I yeah. can see yeah, I some of I, I that. Think, I think that that could be part of it, where I think that if you feel like your cause is righteous, I mean, <clears throat> yep. this is not a new phenomenon in, Amer- in American history, let alone world history or human history. I feel like if you feel like your cause is righteous, you truly do, then people who disagree with it or even question it are the enemy. I mean, this is how this kind of energy, I don't think it's too wild to say that this kind of energy and this kind of passion is what caused things like the French Revolution and the terror and things like that. I think that if you truly believe that you're building a better society and someone questions or disagrees with it, it's, it's not a... It is not too far of a leap to say, look, our cause is so great that we need to get rid of these people who are in the way of it um, and, and completely disregard <clears throat> their thoughts and opinions at all, which I think is, is partially what happened. But it's interesting you say Ohio State because I want to talk about that in a second. Um, but first, I think I want to pivot this to talk a little bit about the other example you mentioned, which is Milo Yiannopoulos' talk on DePaul's campus, uh, which is really fascinating. It, th- by the way, I have no notes on this in front of me. This is just, I've been following it, so I'm just going to kind of talk extemporaneously, but I encourage anybody listening to go uh, Google this. Um, Miley Yiannopoulos, first of all, he's a writer for an editor for Breitbart, which is a conservative online periodical. Uh, he's, he's English, he's gay, he's um, conservative. He's kind of a provocateur. He likes saying very provocative and ridiculous things in order to spur discussion or, or to kind of troll the people who he talks to. One of the things he's very famous for online is debating feminists and 
saying things like, oh, well, of course you'd be a feminist. Nobody wants to fuck you. Like things, things like this. And then when they come back <laughs> at him, he's like, well, I'm gay. I wouldn't want to do it anyway. And like, he's just, that's the kind of guy he is. So part, so part of it, and the reason I say that is I think it's important for you to know that part of his, um, part of where this comes from is that he was on a tour of what I would describe as traditionally left liberal left wing American college campuses. Um, and DePaul among them. Um, DePaul here in Chicago is literally just down the street from where I live. And he came here uh, to speak. And the the first thing that happened was that he was hit in a, I mean, days before he was supposed to speak. He was hit with a ton of different uh, hoops that he had to jump through uh, in order to actually speak. Now, he was sponsored by the DePaul College Republicans, which is a very small group of people at DePaul University, as one can imagine. But they had to provide security. They had, I mean, last minute, like, turns out you need 15 security guards. Also, it turns out you need the fire marshal to come in and check out this building. Turns out you need, you know, I'm just, and the first one of those is absolutely true. I don't know if the fire marshal had to come in, but you get the idea, like basically a whole bunch of different things that suddenly had to take place in the, you know, the, in a very short amount of time before him arriving. Um, the college Republicans paid him a very small amount of money to come and speak. Uh, and then the school demanded that they end up spending something like an additional 15 K like $15,000 of other fees and things that had to take place in order to allow Milo to come and speak at the school. Um, now the co- young college Republicans, uh, don't have that kind of money in pocket, uh, to spend in the few days before someone is supposed to come in and speak. So Milo Yiannopoulos took out his own checkbook and wrote a check to everybody that needed a check written to them. I think his final tally was something like $17,000 out of pocket for him to come and speak at DePaul University. Yeah. So that's the first. Now, if that alone happened, can you imagine, let's reverse this, by the way. Can you imagine if that had happened to a classic liberal left-wing speaker? I mean, I'm a liberal, and if I I, I identify as as liberal and left-wing, but... I can't imagine that taking place if wh- whoever Milo's counterpart is on the left side of the political spectrum would be if they were going to like Hillsdale College or like Grand Valley State University or some other college that's, you know, potentially more conservative. If they were a liberal speaker going to a conservative university and giving a talk and someone required that of them. The media would go insane over something like that, just just to begin with, just that part, not let alone what happens next in this story. I mean, you see what I'm saying, right? Like, I I think it's amazing because people just kind of didn't like him, and there's been almost no discussion of it publicly. So that's the first part. The second part of the story is that so Milo comes to the campus, um, the the talk itself gets protested by hundreds of people. Um, and I mean, I was, this is down the street from me. I mean, I, I saw this happen. Uh, I didn't even know this was happening, by the way. I later found out that Milo was on campus because I follow him on YouTube and I was like, oh shit, I totally missed that talk. But, you know, maybe it would have been good because for my personal safety, anyway, these people show up, they start protesting outside. They're shouting him down. They're yelling, they're throwing things at people walking in to hear him speak. And there's YouTube footage of people who are going in just recording their own experience of being shouted at and called racists and rape apologists and uh, misogynists and, you know, all of these things. You can't really call them a homophobe because Milo's gay, but everything else that you under the sun that, that they could assault at the level of identity with the people walking in were being yelled at these people. Um, and a lot of them were like, hey, look, I just want to hear what he has to say. Like, this is kind of nuts. And it continued inside of the auditorium in which he was speaking. They were asking him questions. He was talking. They had to continuously stop the talk and ask people in the audience to quiet down. Security removed no one from this event. No one oh, you're kidding was me. taken out of this event. They constantly stopped. The online footage of this goes for about 30 minutes. I think it's minute like 23 or 24 of the video. 
where someone finally stands up in the crowd, he's a Black Lives Matter supporter, blows a whistle, continues to blow it to interrupt and stop the discussion and talk all together, goes up on stage, um, essentially wait, could have physically wait, wait. assaulted the, my- the, the person from the audience went up on the stage? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Two of them did. They got up on the stage. No one stopped them. They could have physically assaulted Milo if they had wanted to. Um, were blowing whistles, uh, grabbed the microphone out of the hand of one of the guys who was you know, basically emceeing the thing, uh, began shouting down, Milo's a racist, he's a, he's, a, uh, you know, he's a misogynist, he's all of these things. Um, and the footage just continues. I mean, for the next probably 15 minutes, there attempts to be some kind of like, let's continue this discussion. And Milo is charitable in the sense that he was like, look, sit down, let's talk. We, like, if you're really this worked up, let's talk about this. Um, they have no interest in having an actual discussion. They just want to shut down the discussion yep. that Milo is having. They don't want to engage in any meaningful conversation <laughs> that could be productive. Um, they don't have any grievances that can be articulated in a way that, that, that could be even had in a discussion, it looks like. And security does nothing. And so what, what's nuts about this is the university security does nothing. The private security they hire does nothing. So Milo leaves, and now there's footage of this. He attempted to go to the, I think, uh, university president's office to talk to them immediately about it. Um, and he's like, look, I spent, I spent a lot of my own money to ensure that this is, a, this is a place that I could have a discussion, and we wanted to have this discussion, and we can't even have it. And so the point that he makes in this video afterwards where he attempts to go to the president's office, who was not there, the president left campus probably purposefully that day, Yep. to avoid this kind yep. of things. Um, the, the talk that he wants to have is he goes, look, you have conservative students on your campus. They have an interest in having a discussion. They have an interest in having me come to participate in that discussion. And you're allowing other students on your campus to prevent that from even happening. Don't they also have rights? That's really, that, that's really I think, the crux of this is that, I mean, even if you disagree even if you're, even if you are right, even if you disagree with the fact that you think, like you think, hey, let's ha- let's let's put it this way, let's just, let's assume we could find indisputable evidence that Milo Yiannopoulos is both a a racial bigot and also a misogynist. He he absolutely, let's say we could find evidence that shows that he absolutely is guilty of all of the things that you that these people believe about him. Does that even prevent, does that evidence prevent, or should it prevent, him from expressing any ideas on the campus? And I think the answer to that question is no. I think that we could, we could think he's actually Hitler, but even then, it's worthy of engaging with those ideas for no other reason than to know that they're wrong and to engage with them in their wrongness. You know what I mean? I like, totally agree, and that's uh, yeah. You, you said it really well there because to me, you know, I, I there's there's a number of other examples I could give, and I don't want this to, to to go off course, which it will if I raise these other examples. So I won't, but I will say this. Um, yes, exactly. Even if this man is exactly what his haters purport him to be, I would say so. Fucking what? So what? So he's a misogynist, even if he is. Who cares? So he's a racist. Uh, who cares? Does that, uh, this is America. We have free speech here. We, we, uh, we take pride in the fact, or at least some of us take pride in the fact that we have free speech here because the alternative is horrifying. And, you know, when you said the, the, the president of the university was conveniently not available, um, you know, on one hand, I, I would, I'm, I'm guessing you're right, and I condemn him for that. On the other hand, if put in the same position in today's culture, a political, or today's PC culture, shit, he probably had no choice because if he would have defended this man in any way based upon everything you've said oh about God. what happened, I mean, he'd yeah, lose his job. Take, your, take the example you said earlier. There's a whole slew of students at DePaul who cannot wait for their, to, to prove that they have a racist uh, president of the university. They can't wait for that. That, that, that would give them so much meaning in their life to then find that wall to or door but, to push out or yeah, break totally open. Agree, but, but stop <laughs> and think about just how, how far we've moved away from our 
government, governmental slash cultural foundation of taking pride in. Uh, it's so ironic because these haters are protesting in favor of diversity while shutting down diversity. That's exactly the hypocrisy right. is the, the hypocrisy is mind numbing. It's saying uh, this person is against diversity, so we need to shut him down. We need to get him fired. We need to beat the shit out of him. But that in and of itself is what you're doing is against diversity. The, the hypocrisy in this is incredible. It's incredible. And, and again, it's as if being a racist, believe me, I'm not in any way advocating racism. Don't get me wrong. But I can think of a whole lot of other things that are just as bad or worse. And even if a person is racist, they can be racist. We can be racist in this country. We can be misogynist well, well, in, in this country. There's no yeah, well, one set of rules that, that says. Yeah, yeah. That people need to have to be any certain kind of way. And I mean, uh, I, I agree with that. And the, I mean, I don't think. Here's what's weird about this. I don't think anybody is advocating. I don't think anybody's advocating. Just whatever they think, whatever the other side of this is, whatever the students think Milo is advocating, racism, misogyny, whatever, rape apology. Um, he's not actually, I, I, I would bet, I mean, not knowing the internal workings of that man's brain, I could almost guarantee that he's not actually guilty of, of doing that, of, of being a proponent of any of those things. And, and the reason that I suspect that is because they can't engage him in an actual conversation about it. Because were they to do that and actually unlock his views and, and kind of climb inside and actually figure out the contours of the things that he is advocating and believe in, it would become quickly apparent that the things they're accusing him of, uh, he is not doing. He's not guilty of. You know what I mean? Like, and again, like, even if he saying, is, so what? Yeah, and even if he was, so what? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, even if he was, what's the, I don't understand why we're, why you're deplatforming, you know? Which is well, really what does deplatform mean? Yeah, so deplatforming is the way that the sort of campus PC police, uh, which are, which are the people we're talking about here. Right. Uh, they end up enforcing their sort of thought control on campuses, which is that, it's exactly the same way that they attempted to do this to Milo at DePaul, which is that we, we will find a way to prevent someone from actually speaking publicly. We are going to make sure that the event can't happen at the venue that it's going to happen at. We're going to make sure that it won't yeah, be, crazy. you know, the, the university won't sponsor it. We're going to make sure that people can't get to it because we're going to surround the building with a chain of humans and we're going to physically prevent someone from entering. We're going to, yeah, these are things, these are all tactics. I mean, these are just off the top of my head, but these are all tactics that these people employ. We're going to sit outside of the venue and spew vitriol at people walking in to see it so that people won't want to walk in and see it because they'll feel threatened and unsafe. Yep. Yep. Um, which is nuts because these are, these are the same kinds of people who are advocating for safe spaces. These are the same kinds of people who are saying, no, the campus is a safe space. We can't have can't broach topics that are dangerous and yet at the same time it's unsafe to go see milo talk because somebody's going to call you a, 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 a fucking bigot and a racist and a misogynist and maybe throw something at you and certainly or throw a your punch. face on a video yeah or throw yep. a punch or or even worse record your face on a video calling you a racist walking in to talk with someone who they call a racist and plaster it all over social media so that now you're a racist now. Yeah, exactly. Now you're a racist. Now, now the now the narrative you have to back up against is one in which you are already guilty by association, which is maybe worse. I would rather take the punch. Well, I'd rather that. not do any of that, and I think it's ridiculous that that, in, that this stuff goes on because again, it's just so it's so it's so the opposite of what I think I experienced back all those years ago in my college experience, where you know I, there was really nothing going on of this nature, but. I, I, I can tell you that the overall attitude was one of free speech and there was, you know, great, um, uh, great pride in that. And maybe, maybe now I'm drifting away from college campuses just to our culture at large. But, you know, there was a time not that long ago when the, 
the, the, the liberals would be the ones screaming for free speech. And now it's just yeah. the opposite, and it's crazy. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about another thing that we touched on briefly before we came on the air about this guy that you seem to know a lot about, a guy that I learned just a little about recently. But uh, his name is, is his first name Ali Saad? No, it's Gad, G-A-D, Gad Saad. Oh, sorry, Gad Saad. But, um, you know, he's uh, a teacher at McGill University, which I believe is in Toronto. It's in Montreal, um, yeah, but it's Canadian. Oh, sorry, Montreal, Montreal. Canada, Czechoslovakia, we zip in, we zip out. But, <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's not America. I, I, started, I started watching a video that he, uh, he was speaking to, I believe it was a room full of college kids, and the, and the name of the, the video was called The Evils of Political Correctness Explained. And, um, again, you know a lot more about this guy than I do, so I'll let you speak on this, but I do want to make sure we talk about that, that um, – that experiment that happened at Queen's University that he referenced. Well, you go go ahead. I mean, you you've got all right. Um, you you all have right. Well, I'll just talk. I'll just talk about, about that. About I'll talk about that specifically, and then you can add whatever you want to add about him, about Gad. Sure. But um, someone did an experiment at Queen's University. Some uh, person named uh, Anissa Rahani, and she wore a hijab for 18 days to examine how people would respond to her by, you know, just dressing as if she were Muslim. Uh, to her surprise, she found that people were very kind and polite with her, which I guess is not what she expected. But her conclusion, mm. now get this, get this, wait for this. Her conclusion, the overt tolerance and kindness that she experienced was a manifestation of people overcompensating for their latent bigotry and intolerance. In yeah. other words, being kind and tolerant, according to this person, is racist. So let's think about this for a second. If you're, if you're an asshole to somebody because they appear to be a foreign culture, you're a racist. And if you're kind and tolerant, you're also a racist. You're also a racist. So in other words, everyone's racist. Yeah. Or at least certain classes are racist. That's insane. Yep. It is nuts. I feel like this is, it's, it's, it, I mean, he's, you should go into a little bit further into like some of the things he talked about in discussion because it's not, we shouldn't stop here. He has a lot of, a lot of very interesting points in this talk. And again, you guys can look, find it. Everybody listening can find well, it. Well, yeah, one, one other uh, thing, on you know, I'll just make, I'll, I'll give one other specific and that is, you know, um, the, the, the argument from the left is always about, uh, you know, balance and representation and uh, giving all, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and, and all classes matter, that whole philosophy of representation and everybody should have a voice. But he gives one example in this video, and I, I agree with you. I would encourage anybody to watch this who has any interest on this topic. The video is called The Evils of Political Correctness Explained. And on our, uh, on our uh, blog page, I'll include a link uh, the blog page that will include this podcast, I'll include a link so you can just look below if you're watching this podcast and hopefully see that link. But he talked about one um, major college uh, where there, the ratio of Democrats to Republicans in a sociology department was 44 to 1. So there were 44 Democrats and one uh, Republican in a sociology department. And then he also quotes uh, Thomas Sowell, who says, the next time academics tell you how important diversity is, ask how many Republicans there are in their sociology department, because apparently this is a trend that exists in most colleges. And so, you know, that the spin happening is just so, it's so unbalanced, it's so one-sided that clearly there is some link between that that fact or those facts and the behaviors that we're seeing on college campuses today, many of which we've, we've referenced. It's, um, it's, it's, it's just very, it's just very fascinating that I think that that's, that's really the case is that there's no space to have a, in which to have a non-progressive opinion Certain, let alone voice it on a college campus at all. And there's no resonating faculty member who would help try to advocate for your ability to even have it. You know, 
Yep. Like who, who it's hard to even have, I mean, the idea that DePaul university even has a, you know, college Republicans chapter is kind of amazing. Um, I don't even know who the faculty member would be who even heads that department. I mean, DePaul is a very liberal school. Um, but, you know, Gad is right where, you know, I mean, from a even higher level philosophical perspective, you know, ideological thinking is really, really bad. Um, that, that presupposing that you understand answers to questions like this woman with the, who wore the hijab for a while did. I mean, her, she walked into that experiment. I think it would be easy to see that she walked into that experiment already believing that people are racist. Yep. Literally. find that kind of evidence. And then when yep. she didn't find it, she found it because she didn't find it. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah, that I, that's a pretty, it's a pretty clear example of ideological thinking because it, it, it's someone who goes, look, we, we already know that the world is racist. So now all I'm doing is looking for where to, where that is occurring. And that's really bad because it prevents people from being able to see contradictory evidence that then clearly shows that their, their worldview is incorrect. And sometimes that can lead to things like, for example, the great recession and the housing bubble bursting. I mean, what I'm not saying is that this kind of thinking that someone has in the progressive way is linked to that. I'm not saying those two things are linked. What I am saying is that there's real world consequences for that kind of behavior. Like there's real world consequences for, you know, and one of them, and I know that you might not like this, but one of them is that, you know, Donald Trump, a lot of the people who probably support him are simply reacting to the fact that they feel like this progressive culture is, is making them out to be a misogynist, racist, whatever, even though they, they don't think of themselves that way. And they are tired of living in a world in which they're guilty at the level of their identity, um, simply for existing and being oh, like, I a agree. white man. Yeah. Well, I completely agree. And, there's and, no question that there's a backlash going on there. Yeah. And I think that this is, that is a result of this, that I think that were, there, were this kind of culture not to exist necessarily, I don't know that Donald Trump would enjoy the kind of support that he has. Well, there's no question that it's helped him. I mean, you know, it, it, you're right. I think there's a lot of people who are sort of moderate or centrist or whatever they're called these days, um, and they're, they seem to be in short supply. Maybe, I, I think a lot of people have just gone underground, you know, uh, publicly in terms of voicing opinions for exactly yeah. the reasons we're talking about, where um, I know it's no exaggeration that Forty percent of the posts that I write on Facebook, and I, I think I probably post more than average. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I say forty percent of them never see the light of day because I just think, okay, I know exactly. I can tell you who is going to say what. I know the people so well in my life who are, you know, political adversaries of mine. Uh, who will come in, and I can quote the last time I said something that was. Uh, controversial. Um, I, I sort of wrote in my head, I had jotted down a list of three people that I knew would reply to that post and all three did. And one yeah. in particular, one in particular, a woman who was probably my least favorite person in America in all honesty, because she's just <laughs> yeah. so, she's just such a knee jerk, hardcore liberal. And I want to be clear that I'm not just, I'm not, uh, uh, I think I said this in, 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 in our introductory episode, maybe I didn't, but I don't, you know, I am conservative, but I'm very progressive on some issues. I think the war on drugs, for example, was a complete failure. I think, you know, I'm pro the legalization of drugs, not because I'm, you know, not because I'm a druggie, but because I just see the reality that it, it, it doesn't work. And we're losing tons yeah. of tax revenue yeah. we could have. And people are put in dangerous situations that they wouldn't have to be in if they were legalized. And I give a whole, a whole additional slew of, of reasons for that point and additional points that would show that I'm not just some toe-the-line, yeah. hardcore yeah. conservative. But yeah. anyway, this woman, you know, she said things like, I just want to tell you how disappointed I am in you and uh, how much I misjudged you, sir. Um, you know, it's just like, you can't just disagree with me on the point. You've got to go, you've got to smear me as if I'm trash and I'm filth and I, I shouldn't exist because. I take a, because I articulate a position that, you know, goes against what the prevailing liberal thought is, because you just can't yeah, do that. Just, 
just because we disagree on something and doesn't mean that, I mean, and this is the other part of it. Like you're not, none of the uh, thoughts and I mean, like I know you, uh, and I know that you can sometimes be, you can, I can uh, appreciate that you can have thoughts and opinions that are, you know, other people would disagree with, but none of those include, none of those things include a, a judge, a harsh, condescending, insulting judgment on the identity of the other person. Like none, of, exactly. nothing you would believe is, you know, is something like, look, you're subhuman and the things you believe are subhuman. And I just want you to know that like that's, that, that is no part in your philosophy, which is why you and I can disagree and, you know, still have this sort of discussion is that I know that you, you have the well-being of others in, in mind, but that, that doctrine, like we talked about last time, that doctrine of charity is gone from a lot of these, mm-hmm. especially college students. And one of the things that Jonathan Haidt talked about in this article in the Atlantic and, and a couple other talks I've seen since is that he tries to speculate as to where this, why, why is this happening? Why is this happening now? And, and didn't really happen in the past necessarily. I mean, there's always been, you know, a youthful uh, desire to try to, I think, t- define the world as you grow up and move into it and make it your own. I mean, that, I think that's kind of clear, but the difference I think is that uh, we we now have older faculty members who who don't feel the need to tell students that they're wrong. Yep. Like the Yale professor or the Yale dean of students in this video is standing there and he's going, "Look, I, you and I have differing opinions on what you know my job is here at the university." That is different than saying, "Listen, young lady, you're wrong. You're you're, yep. you're dead wrong. And not only are you wrong." But if this is the way you're going to behave, you do not belong at Yale. I agree. That, that is it. This is not the way that you need to behave. This is not what a student is here for. This is not what my job is. And you are ignorant. The reason you are at this university is to be educated. And I can see today that none of that is doing any good to you. So I don't understand why you're here. Like, it, it, it blows my mind. I don't understand why that guy didn't say it. And Well, I, yes, I, I agree. Go ahead. I agree. I agree, I, but but you you know why he didn't? Because if he'd said that, he probably would have been physically attacked. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, the rest of the progressive Gestapo would have, I think, jumped the guy. Well, that and, seems uh, to be also part of. No, that seems to be also part of part of the mo is that you know the the response to perceived um, social injustice, whether again it's it's perceived racism or misogyny or whatever it is. There's no real limit on what you can do in response to that. You know, it's okay to chase a Trump supporter down like he's a gazelle fling a lion and punch him in the yeah. side of the head. That's perfectly cool. That's perfectly fine. What's wrong with that? The guy's a he's a he's a fucking racist because he's at or attempting to go to a Trump rally. Maybe he's there to yeah. protest. But yeah. you know, let's why should we let's not bother with finding out any of the facts and and in and even in that case, it's ridiculous. There's no justification for it whatsoever. And somehow we've reached this place where I don't think many people get even that worked up over that kind of a story anymore. You know? Um, yeah, they uh, don't. People block a highway so that uh, people who have no nothing to do with an, incident, an, an issue whatsoever can't get to work. Maybe somebody got fired because they couldn't get to work. Or maybe they couldn't pick their child up at daycare and who knows yep. what happened to that child that day because they couldn't get to him because somebody was fucking blocking the road. And that yeah, type of, yep. you know, uh, it just, you know, it just angers me to no end. And, you know, again, we have well, so this much is the more. Same we can, thing that you would. Yeah, there's so much more we can talk about, but I, I just want to make this point, which is I understand why you're angry about this. because One of the things you hate is entitlement. And. Oh God! The, the thing that you don't like about this, if I have to say, is I think that you don't like the idea that someone's going, look, my, these things that I believe in are so important that they override any of your interests and things that yep. you think are important. And I can interrupt your life and I'm entitled to do it. Yep. And we don't need to talk about it. Yep. I'm just going to do it. And as long yeah, as the, as long as the response to that type of thinking and behavior is as tepid as it is these days, it yeah. will continue unabated. And, you know, a, a thought that I have, uh, often is uh, two things actually that are very closely related. One is if 
if I'm if you call me and I'm just again, this is just an example, a random example. If you call me a racist long enough and loud enough, even if I'm not one, at some point start, you probably yeah. yeah. you probably push me in the direction of becoming one. Because it's sort of like, hey, if yeah. I'm gonna pay the price, I might as well, you know, do the crime type of thinking. Yeah. Well, and well, the other it, thought I it's um Yeah. You're totally, I, I completely, um, and, then, the, and then the other, well, let me just finish and then you, you can respond to both of these things. And the other thing I think is, you know, if you look at the statistics of racial composition in this country, um, you know, uh, uh, there's still, uh, major, majorities still exist or a majority still exists. And I have to think that at some point, if you kick the bear in the face or if you poke the bear with the stick enough, it's gonna, you're gonna rouse some reaction from that animal. And I just feel as if there's been so much done and said uh, against the majority that, again, it, tying it back to my previous point, that, you know, at some point you just piss it off. You just piss it off. And I'm amazed, honestly, at the tolerance that I felt from my class in terms of, yeah. you know, the, the middle-aged white male that would be viewed as privileged by many, um, who, who really, I, at least speaking for myself, I'm not privileged. I came from a very poor background. Um, I live in a very middle-class existence now. Um, yeah. I'm not yeah. sitting on some mountain of money. Nobody gave me anything. I never, ever had any sort of an entitlement mentality. I still don't. I, I've never even thought about, what could I get from the government? That thought has never even entered my mind. My whole approach to life is, if I need more money, I better fucking hustle. Hey, let's start a new business. Yeah. Let's start another new business. Let's start another new business. Let's just work harder. I mean, you've been part of this in my life. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. And so it's like, yeah. it, this whole entitlement, you're, you're so right about that. This whole entitlement thing is so foreign to me that I can't even really, imp I can't empathize with it. I can't, my head can't go there because there's a certain level of, I don't know what to call it, human pride maybe. Or just a sense yeah. of what I think is right, that we have yeah. a responsibility yeah. as people who are healthy and you know, able-bodied and able-minded, that if, you're not, if you don't have some sort of a disability, uh, then good luck, motherfucker. <laughs> Get out and earn a living. And, and if you yeah. can't earn a living, I'm sorry for you, but I mean, life ain't fair. It is not fair. It's well, the law of the jungle, yeah. and I think it should be. Well, it's very interesting. We would, we, you know, I'm in, in a lot of things you were saying, I could see, uh, in a deeper discussion, diving in a little bit and talking about things like what, what, what does privilege mean? And cause I do have a different opinion a little bit. Um, but I don't think you're, I don't think you're wrong when you say that, look, I mean, this is kind of, this is like the way the world is and the entitlement mentality is, 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 is absolutely attempting to work that. I think that that comes from yep. an ideology that, that that functions before the intake of evidence in the world around you. Um, this is just a much deeper. I mean, this is why this is a multi series. This is a multi episode yeah. series. I mean, I, we didn't even get into. I think some of the roots of where PC culture comes from, or yep. what I think it, it it is, and what continues its existence. I mean, there's a lot of people who I think would agree with us that this sucks, but there's like nothing you can do about it. And part of the reason is because, like you were saying, you know, I don't understand why these guys. I I couldn't you know, there's a lot of restraint shown. Well, the problem is that violence, the reaction of violence gives these people a stronger sense of purpose and identity. Um, and I think that the solution, and we can talk about it in the next episode, was employed by Ohio State University, where they took the language of the protesters and used it back against them very effectively, which is really fascinating, um, which is why I think the end goal of this victimhood political correctness, virtue signaling culture is going to, it's ultimately going to, pardon me, implode, not explode, implode in the next probably couple of years here, maybe even sooner, um, because because it's so, it, it, it can't sustain itself under its own ideological weight. Um, I know that's a rather loaded statement, but again, I mean, well, what, I, no, I agree with you. I think you've got to keep listening to Unc for you to hear it. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and this will be the, the final comment we'll make on, on this episode, and then we'll wrap it up. And again, we will be continuing this larger topic in a series of future podcasts, but I, I think you're right. I think it will ultimately implode because 
this feels like the, the, the largest uh, example of the emperor's new clothes in world history where something so off the rails and so wrong has gone so far off the rails and in such a wrong direction, but yet it's not being reined in because of the, the, the weight of, it, of, of the very issue itself. In other words, it's out of control, but to say it's out of control uh, fuels the fire of those people against us because, or against yep. those who yes. oppose it. Yes. And so, but, but at its core, it's fundamentally flawed because of the intellectual inconsistencies and contradictions uh, within it in terms of, again, the, the shouting down of an opposing view when the whole point is to have opposing views. You know, there, that inherent yeah. contradiction can't, can't ultimately last. I think it will at some point implode. But again, um, this has been sort of a heavy topic. We do have more to talk about it. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to talking more about political correctness and many, many, many other diverse topics on future episodes of Unc Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.